Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, our text is verses 15 to 19 of God's holy word. We've learned a great deal thus far about sanctification, and of course today is no different. We're going to learn even more. It is very encouraging to understand what it is that the scriptures express to us about uh, focusing our minds in on what is our justification Versus our sanctification. Now the two, of course, go right together. And it can well be said that if there is no sanctification, there is no justification. It can be said that sanctification is the fruit of justification. There's a number of different ways to express that, that they go hand in hand, but they are not to be confused with one another. Our justification is something outside of ourselves. It is looking unto Christ and his work. He is the object of our faith, not ourselves. He's the one who completed it all, not us, so we rely on him, nothing that we are doing for our justification. Looking at sanctification, this is a work of God in us, conforming us to the image of his son, making us more holy, more righteous as we continue in our daily walk with Christ. And so today, we are looking at at more when it comes to Uh, the different aspects of sanctification and and what all is involved there, especially as the Apostle Paul is, is of course, continuing from what we learned last week. The Apostle Paul says in verse 14 that we looked at, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. We are not under the obligation to the law in the sense of the curse of the law being upon us any longer. We are debtors to grace. But he anticipates some questions. He anticipates maybe some objections that maybe his readers would have, especially looking at the context of everything that he has said thus far of him, especially addressing his Jewish readers, his Jewish audience, those who did rely upon the law uh, to be justified before God, the way that they viewed Abraham as being just before God and he was justified by his works. There was none like Abraham. He was faultless in all of his ways. So taking that kind of an idea... Uh, that kind of a view, and he's, he's been throughout these last number of chapters really demolishing that idea. Abraham was in need of a righteousness, not of his own. Uh, David was in need of a righteousness, not of his own. You are justified by faith alone. The question inevitably comes up. So if we're not under the curse any longer of the law, and the law is no longer condemning to us as you say, well, what then do we do? With our sin, what becomes of it? Because though Christ has paid the penalty, Christ has satisfied the justice of God, we still sin. We recognize that we still sin. We still fail. So what then do we do? And so the apostle has spent this chapter thus far talking about those who are now freed from sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer under its lordship. Sin does not reign over us any longer as king. And so as we begin into verses 15 and following, he really, he does anticipate those questions. What do we say to the ones that would have the idea then, well, if I'm justified before God by what he done, 
and sin no longer reigns in my life. Christ is Lord is what you say. Well, do I just continue living however? Do I continue to live and in, in, in indulge in the very things that I have been indulging in? I mean, what, what does Paul say to that? What does Paul say to those whose lives are still dominated by sin, wickedness, and evil, and they have no conviction for it? Paul, you say that I'm justified by believing, so if I believe that, then I'm good, right? Well, that's what Paul's going into. Paul's saying, no, that's not how this works. And we, that particular objection is something that we would be very familiar with at least for most of us, because we understand that under the Christian umbrella, under the, in, within the Christian church, I should say, depending on which denomination we grew up in, we understand that there is such a doctrine that is advanced by some called the carnal Christian doctrine, that you can remain in your sin, living however you want, as long as you make Christ your Savior. You can deny His Lordship, Maybe later on you might make him Lord and you can live a better life, more blessed life. But as long as you acknowledge him as Savior, and we recognize this as more so within the churches that offer the altar call kind of scenario, come down, pray this prayer, don't ever doubt again. We were witnesses. You prayed the prayer, you're good. Paul is speaking to that. He's speaking to what we understand as the antinomians, those who say there is no law. There is no standard now by which we must live, for we are under grace. We are not under law. What does that imply? Does Paul's words imply that the law of God is now done away? It's no longer the standard of holiness? It's no longer the standard of righteousness? Not at all. That's not at all what his words mean. And that's where he's going to in this particular set of verses. You know, interestingly, you, know, you, can, you can see what Paul says on the surface. You see very clearly what he says. But what we're also going to do is to pay attention to what he didn't say in these verses. What are the things that he clearly says and what's the implication of that? You know, we're going to see here that really within these verses, Paul doesn't give a gray area. He gives black and white, either you're in Christ or you're not. Either you have sin as your master or you have Christ as your master. There is no in-between. So for those that would say that you can lose your salvation, Paul speaks to that too. Paul would basically say you didn't lose it because you never had it. You can't be a carnal Christian because that implies you never were a Christian and you definitely can't lose something you never had. So those are two different ideas. He also does not tell his readers, if you can't, if you can't live accordingly, and not entertain thoughts like this, but, but prove yourself to be a disciple of Christ by how you live and, and how you overcome sin. You prove your faith, and if you can't do that and you're still struggling then you may not even be in the faith. He doesn't say that either. There are certain ideas that many hold today that really confuse 
either one outright deny sanctification, they deny us being preserved, or they confuse the two of justification and sanctification. And Paul's words here really speak to all of that. He gives us uh, statements of fact here, uh, statements to his readers about the new life that God has granted in the genuineness of saving faith. What does it look like? He, he also takes our eyes and places them up to the Lord so that when anything is good happening in our Christian walk, whether we're looking at our justification, of course, whether we're looking at our sanctification and all that God is doing in us, he takes our eyes, he focuses it back on the Lord, and he says, that's who you give thanks to. Don't look at yourself and think how wonderful you are because you are checking all the boxes and trying to be obedient and further along your own sanctification. You cannot sanctify yourself. You have no grace to give yourself. You have no power to give yourself. You can't sanctify yourself. It's impossible. And so he takes our eyes and he focuses it back on the one who does do this work in us so that once again, as we are walking in Christ, we're looking at our justification, we're giving thanks to God for it. We're looking at our sanctification and how we're growing in the Lord and we're giving God thanks for it. And we're praying that he will continue to do this work in us. We live out what God is doing inside. We don't manifest this stuff on our own. We live out what he does in us. And this is brought to us again by the Holy Spirit of God. He grants us the ability to believe in Christ, to exercise faith, but also enables us to live righteously before God. He does this. He grants us the new desires to live for God's glory, and we live out the new desires. We strive with all that we can. We take seriously the commands of Scripture, absolutely. When the Scripture gives us commands of how we ought to be and how we ought to live, we take this seriously. It's not as if we're saying that we're just passive in everything. We don't have this, this idea of let go and let God. We actively pursue righteousness. We actively pursue holiness. But we're doing that because of the work that the Spirit is doing in us, giving the desires to want to do that. And who receives the credit? God does. That's why we acknowledge that any good is God's doing and not our own. So Paul is speaking of these things in verses 15 to 19. He's really expounding what our previous life looked like, looked like apart from Christ. The new life that we have now in Christ the contrast between the two, and that we will continue to grow in holiness, and this is all a work of God and of God alone. So if you would, and you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are looking at Romans 6, beginning of verse 15, reading to verse 19. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we humble ourselves before you, acknowledging, Father, that any good in us is your doing. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We can't glorify ourselves. We rely on you. We can't overcome sin without the Spirit working in us, giving us the power to do so, enabling us to, to overcome and to see the way of escape with every temptation. Everything is, is credited back to you. It's you have the credit for it all. Father, we pray that as we look at these passages, that one, we will be encouraged in, in standing firm in our, in our salvation. That we will be encouraged to know that we can't do anything in our own power, but we must rely upon you to do it. Oh, Father, we pray that, that we would be uh, comforted to know that the work that you've begun in us, you will continue to do until the day that you call us home. It's your work. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works which you prepared. Father, guide our thoughts. Do a mighty work within our hearts. May the Spirit of God conform us even more so to the image of your Son as a result of these passages here. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So, verse 15, continuing on from the previous verses that we looked at, of course. Looking back at what we went over last Lord's Day, verses 12 to 14, Paul has already said prior to that, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God. He says in verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. That idea of reigning, as we talked about, is reigning as king. You being an obedient soldier, an obedient subject. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And this is speaking of every part of you. The totality of your being. Do not give it over. Do not offer it to uh, unrighteousness as a weapon of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And so here he begins to anticipate the question then. Here's what, I, here's what Paul's saying. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not offer yourselves over and present your bodies to unrighteousness. And so the, the rhetorical question here. It's really, it's in the subjunctive mood in the Greek, which is more of a hypothetical kind of a situation, hypothetical statement here. So what do we say to all this? This is really hearkening back to verse 1, isn't it? Very similar question. What are we to say to all this? Just in case, if anyone even entertained the idea 
that you are permitted to continue into sin even after professing Christ? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And then he says those words again. May it never be. Or as some of your translations say, God forbid. God forbid. And one theologian said it this way. No, no, a thousand times no. That's the answer. Shall we sin because we are not under law? We're not under the condemnation of the law anymore if I believe in him. All my sins are forgiven. I cannot be condemned again. So do I just continue on? No, no, a thousand times no. That's what he says. God forbid. Do we sin because we're forgiven? No. Since you're not under the law, not under the condemnation of the law, the curse of the law, do you think that you have license now? We're no longer condemned. Does this imply that the law ceases to exist and it's no longer the standard for God's will for our life? You know, you, if you take some of the, the folks that he's writing to that are so involved in the law and they think that they have the law and they realize by his writings too that they're hypocrites and they're not doing the things of the law. Okay, so if I'm never justified before the Lord on account of the law, then do I just forego the law and live however? That's what some people think. You know, you take some of the guys that advocated the easy believism, like Zane Hodges, for one. I mean, he would rest, he would say that a person would be saved simply by the profession of faith they made. Go so far as to say that if they made a profession of faith, even if they all basically deserted the faith after, they're still saved because they made a profession of faith. That's how far this goes. You have um, some, some of us may be familiar with some of those little tracks, the four spiritual laws, I believe. What do you see in that? If you're not familiar with it, well, you'll see some different diagrams there, some different pictures. But you'll see one that has this, this throne over here, and you have this circle. You have the throne over here, and you're on the throne. Christ is outside the box or outside the circle. And then when you accept him as Savior, you're still in the chair, but now he's in the circle. But later on, maybe when you make him Lord, then he sits in the throne, and then you're down here somewhere. That's the idea of a carnal Christian. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 3 when Paul says you're acting fleshly, you're acting carnal. He's not saying you are. He's saying because of all the bickering and all the dissensions that you have and the divisions that you have of pairing up with this teacher and that teacher and that teacher, you're acting carnal. You're acting like the pagans do when it comes to their philosophers. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you can act this way or be this way truly and still be converted, but that is some of the ideas that are in the church. Don't ever doubt because I was a witness. You prayed these particular words and that's all it's needed. This is antinomianism. There is no standard that you have to live by now. 
Well, the scriptures tell us very clearly in 1 John chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says he has come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Jesus even says, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? There is a standard and it's a standard that has been revealed to God's people for centuries. That is the standard of righteousness. You look at the law and it's the expression of the holiness of God, the standard that he demands. So that when you look at the law, apart from Christ, you say, I can't do it. I stand condemned. But then there's a change of relationship whenever you are in Christ because now the law of God is fulfilled in you. And then when you desire to please God, what is it you do? Do you try to come up with some ideas yourself? I wonder what I can do to please God. I got to do some guessing work. Or do you look at what has already been revealed and say, I know that's pleasing to him because that's the expression of his holiness. So I'm going to do that. So shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? God forbid. May it never be. But notice what he goes on to say. He doesn't leave any room here. There's no gray area. There's no gray area in the sense of being a carnal Christian, any of that. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? It's one or the other. There is no in between. And Here's something to keep in mind, too. As he says these things, as he says, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, dear readers, don't have these particular thoughts going through your mind because if you fall into this, you may lose your salvation. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even imply that this is a possibility. Why? Because it's black and white. You cannot lose what you never had. And that's what he's talking about in these next verses in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin. If you are obeying sin and you are indulging in sin and you have no conviction of the life that you live, then that is demonstrating that you are still under the mastery of sin. You are still dead in sin. You've never had life. But if you are living now in view of of the work of Christ, if you're living in view of the grace that you have received in Him, living in view of, of what God has prepared for you, all of this, yes, you still struggle with sin, but your heart's desire is to obey. Two different people. He demolishes the idea of a carnal Christian. He, even in just that one statement, because he doesn't go on you know, to say anything other than, than it's either black or white, he demolishes an idea that you can even lose your salvation. It's not possible. Because if you're living that kind of life, it's not that you're having to sin so much that you end up losing something. It's that if you're living that kind of life and you're you know, swimming in sin and wickedness and evil and, and all of these evil desires, you were never made alive. So you cannot lose what you never had. 
This is, this is t- really speaking of like a counterfeit faith here in verses 15 and 16 to say, if this is how you think, if this is how you are acting, if this is how you are living your life, then you are a slave still to sin. You never had it. Never had it. There are only two masters to choose from. You're a slave to whom you obey. Now again, this is not giving us two contrasting ideas that if you sin, that means you're under the mastery of sin, but you must live perfectly to demonstrate you're under the righteousness of Christ and all of that. We recognize and acknowledge all the time, acknowledge that we will never be perfected in this life. But it's the desires that are the demonstration. The demonstration of true faith. We fall into sin. We say something we shouldn't. We act in a certain way. What is it that we do? We say, Oh Lord, forgive me. I offended you. Forgive me. And then what are we doing? We're striving not to do it again. But our heart's desire is to obey. I want to do this. I want to show you that I love you. But I find myself doing the wrong things at times. Forgive me for my failures. That is characteristic of a true believer. Not one who has counterfeit faith who lives however they want. You never had it, is the idea. And he really reverts back to some of his previous comments using the similar language there of presenting yourselves as a slave. He's using this illustration to really drive home this idea. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Being alive is how we are to be. We're we're to live as those who are alive to God and dead to sin. That's what he says Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Verse 11, verse 13. Being alive, being alive to God in Christ is being aware of the, the continued presence of God, the consequences of sin, the great love of God, Christ and His work. I mean, just think about this. What keeps you from falling into sin? Some of those Uh, rudiments of the old man that pop up and say, I would really like to do this. What is it that keeps you from doing it? Before it may have been, I just don't want to get caught because I don't want to get in trouble. Right? What is it now? Why don't you just indulge in it like you did before? Because maybe the consequences we fear now is the chastening hand of God. The consequences we fear now are bringing dishonor upon God. We don't want to dishonor God. That's one of the things that keeps us from indulging in sin like we used to. Another consequence that we think about now is we don't want to cause anyone else to stumble. Whenever a temptation arises, those are some of the things we think of. Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to dishonor you. Oh, Lord, I don't want to get myself in a situation where... You're going to be chastening me. Oh, Lord, don't let me fall into this. I don't want to cause anyone else to stumble. Those are things that come through our mind. Whereas before, 
I just don't want to get caught. I want to keep up appearances, let people think that I'm this, I'm really that, so I don't want to get caught for those reasons. The motives are different. The motive of a child of God trying to restrain themselves from sin is different than one who wants to just indulge in everything. If you are a slave of God, a slave of righteousness, you no longer serve sin in the same way that you did. Because you have a new master. And here's why. Here's why you don't. Is because God has done a great work in you. And this is why he goes on to say, But thanks be to God. That though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Here's where he starts. Here's where we can look at the genuineness of faith versus what he just expounded for us. Thanks be to God that you were slaves, that though you were slaves, you used to be slaves of sin. Now you became obedient, but not obedient just to do it. You became obedient from the heart. There's a difference. You became obedient from the heart. Again, look at what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, thanks be to God. Um, or rather, he doesn't say, thanks to you, my readers. Thanks to, big thanks to you. Kudos to you. Because you have chosen wisely. Thank you for not going down that path. You should be commended because you were strong enough and had the determination of the will not to do it. He doesn't say that. But yet that's part of the idea out there, isn't it? That your sanctification, your growth in Christ is your responsibility. And it isn't. Justification is a monergistic work of God. One worker, God. Sanctification is a monergistic work of God. One worker. Only God. That's why he gives God the thanks. Thanks is given to God because you used to be slaves of sin, but you became obedient from the heart to that true apostolic teaching. And it was God's doing that this occurred. You used to be this, but you became obedient from the heart and think of this. This is part of some of the difference that we find within the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, you had all the stipulations that were given. Obey, you have blessing. If you don't, you have curses. But then, what does he say? The people disobeyed. The people rejected. And so when you have the announcement of the New Covenant, you have something very different that really guarantees genuine faith and genuine obedience. In Hebrews chapter 8... Hebrews chapter 8, beginning of verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he says, this is quoting from Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, 
For they did not continue in my covenant, and, did, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The greatness of the new covenant that is being given is that God writes his law, not just on tablets, but he writes his law now on your heart. What does that mean? Does that mean you just have a, a sense of, a general sense of knowing what is right and what is wrong? Well, even the pagans have that. That's you know, part of general revelation. But this is something different. When he writes it on your mind and he writes it on your heart, that means that now you have the desires to carry out the clear teachings of God's law, of his word. God has done this. When you think about the other passage that we, that we quote often, Ezekiel 36, when he speaks of, you know, I will sprinkle clean water on you, you will be clean. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and so you shall observe them. This is why Paul says, thanks be to God. You were slaves. You used to be slaves of sin, but you became obedient from the heart because of this work of God in you to the teaching of Scripture the true teaching of Scripture. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So this is very important to see what's happening here. This is, this is demonstrating for us that this is indeed a work of God and not a work of ourselves. This is in the passive voice here. Having been freed from sin, you didn't free yourself. God freed you from sin is the meaning here. And you became enslaved to righteousness or became slaves of righteousness. Again, this is in the passive voice. You did not make yourself a slave of righteousness. God did. God delivered you from the mastery of sin. He made you his own and made you now a servant of righteousness. This is God's work. Nothing that we did. We obey now from the heart because of what he has done. He's transferred us from the domain of darkness into the great kingdom of his son. God receives the credit. He changed our hearts, our allegiance, our affections, our minds. The totality of our being was changed by him to be made alive to God now having the mind of Christ to see sin for what it is, how detestable it is, how repulsive that it is, how revolting that it is to God. He freed us from sin. Freed us from the enemy. And he made us slaves of righteousness, servants of righteousness, of, of right living, of living holy, of living justly. And this is why he receives the credit. Paul gives God the thanks that the Roman church is not under the lordship of sin, his readers. 
For God has given them new desires because he is now their master. And that's what genuine faith does. Genuine faith has this desire to obey God. A desire not to obey God as a tyrant, but a desire to obey God because you recognize again, this is what he did for me. How may I show him my devotion, my appreciation, my thanks? How can I show it to him? It's one thing to say it. People can say that all the time. I believe in God. I believe in Christ. Is there any, is, is there any change in you? Is there any desire in you to actually give God thanks by the way that you live? That you live for his glory and not your own? Genuine faith does give great thanks to God because he's molded us, enabled us to call upon Christ and enables us to live righteously that we may show him. And our lives are a continuing work of God and he will bring his work to completion. And look at what he says here in verse 19, that this faith is a continuing faith. It's a persevering faith and some of the implications of what he says here. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, Maybe they had a limited understanding of these particular spiritual truths. That's why Paul is elaborating as he is and using an illustration that they can understand. You understand the relationship between slaves and masters? If you serve this particular master over here, you cannot serve anyone else. But if he sells you to another, then now your allegiance is to the next one. But you cannot serve two. So he's using something that is familiar to them, familiar relationships because of a limitation maybe that they had in understanding these spiritual truths. So because of the weakness of their flesh. He says, For just as you presented your members to slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, their life as a slave to sin, they offered themselves to impurity, to moral corruption is the idea there. And this is a word that is also used of anything that is, that is filthy or dirty or unclean, according to the word of God. Moral corruption. They offered themselves to lawlessness. And this is a Greek word, anomia. You know, we talk about antinomians. The Greek word for law is nomos. You put an A in front of it, it negates it. So it's basically saying without law. You live without a law, specifically the law of God. These are the ones who... Violate the law of God continually. This was their life as a slave to sin. He's making statements of fact here. This is what is referred to as the indicative mood, this particular statement here. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, this was the reality of your life before. You gave yourself over to moral corruption, to filthiness, to dirtiness, to uncleanliness, morally speaking. You had no law, you violated God's law, and you were sent further into lawlessness as a result of living this way. And that's basically what he says in Romans 2, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That's all you're doing. The longer you continue to live in rebellion against God, all you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself. Greater wrath. But the life that is now given to them this was the reality of who they were. And then he gives the command. You lived as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now 
Present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. This is a command. This is how you were before. You offered yourself up into moral corruptions. So now offer yourself, present yourself, offer, offer the totality of who you are to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, resulting in holiness is the idea. Offering ourselves to righteousness results in holiness, sanctification, or further holiness, you could say. As he uses that language, and if, if you look in your Bible there, the word further uh, before the word lawless is implied, you can almost say the very same thing. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in further sanctification or further holiness. This isn't, again, this isn't something that you're, you're doing, but as the Spirit of God is bringing these desires into your heart and you're living out these desires because you've been able to do so, the more then that you're digging into the Word of God, the more that the Spirit is working and it leads to further and further holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, as you go on living this righteous life and practicing it with all your might and energy and all your time, you will find that the process that went on before in which you went from bad to worse and became viler and viler is entirely reversed. You will become cleaner and cleaner and purer and purer and holier and, ho and holier and more and more conformed unto the image of the Son of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Another theologian says, In the days of our sin, we sin with all our power. There was not one part of us, but what became the willing servant of sin. And we went from iniquity into iniquity. And now the cross has made us entirely new. And we have been melted down, poured out into a fresh mold. Now let us yield every member of our body and soul to righteousness, even holiness, till the whole of us and the wholeness and consequently the holiness of our nature shall be given unto God, end quote. So he's saying here, the more that you live a holy life and carry out this holy life, the more that God will work in you to conform you even more to the image of Christ, to be even more holy. So this comes back again to this, this, this difficulty that we may have. If we are being commanded to do something, how is it that sanctification is not us participating in it, uh, not cooperating with the Spirit of God? Because this is the idea. You have some that believe that sanctification is a synergistic work of God, which is two working. This means that God works and you're cooperating with the grace of God in order to further along your Christian walk. But do you, have, do you have the power to do that? Do you provide yourself with the grace that is needed in the favor of God to carry this out? And the answer is no, you don't. You cannot sanctify yourself. You cannot make yourself more holy. It is impossible. That's why when it comes to our sanctification, this is why we say no, this is a monergistic work of God. But then what do we do with the commands? Well, we do the same thing with the commands that we do in regeneration when it comes to repentance of faith. We look at regeneration 
being born again, and we say, this is absolutely 100% a work of God, regeneration, being born again. We can't cause ourselves to be born again. What is the fruit of that? Faith. Because we have been born again, this working of God in us, we are enabled then to believe in Christ, and we believe God doesn't do this for us. He doesn't believe for us. We believe, and us believing and exercising this faith in Christ is the fruit of being born again. God grants us the faith to believe, and we believe. He doesn't do that for us. He's enabled us to do it, given us the desire to do it. And so for everyone who is regenerated, we call upon Christ. Everyone who is regenerated and born again, you've been granted this faith, and so you want to and you do. There is no one who has ever been born again who doesn't. This is something that you will do. Well, the same thing when it comes to sanctification. Sanctification is the fruit of your justification. But you could also say that good works are the fruit of sanctification. You do good works, but you do the good works because you are being sanctified by God. And he has given you the desires to do these things, to live this way. And so you will do good works. But it's because of God God has set us apart. He is, sanct- he is sanctifying us. He then enables us to carry out these new desires that we have. And look here at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, this is what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the passage that we we all know, of course, very familiar with. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we're very familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The antecedent to that, by the way, is that faith, or you could even say the entirety of salvation. But For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith, or that salvation, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Our sanctification is a work of God. It is a work of God alone. Now, how does all this work together? Very similarly, whenever you heard the preaching of the gospel and the Spirit granted you the effectual calling, regenerated your heart, and enabled you to respond. So when you hear the commands of Scripture... And your heart's desire is already to live for God and to honor God, to please God. So that the more that you study within the scripture and the more that you behold the glory of God and the more that you see the things that God has said, that this is how you ought to walk before me, then the spirit of God in us is saying, yes, I want to do that. How may I do it? 
And so then we have these desires that what we read and find within the Scripture because the Spirit is working, the Spirit is working in conjunction with His Word that He inspired, then our desire is, yes, I want to carry that out, and the Spirit has enabled us to do so. And He has given us the way of escape for every temptation so that the new things that we learn, the Spirit is giving us the desire to want to carry out these things. He's enabled us to do so, and so that's what we do. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we rely on on the, the Spirit of God to do what we cannot, to give us the desires to enable us to carry out what we find. I mean, just think of the times that you're in the Scripture and you read of some of the wonderful men and women within the Scripture, and you say, man, I would love to do that. I would... I mean, I want to be like that. Why would you have that idea? Why would you have that desire? Because the Spirit of God in you is saying, this is pleasing to God. And so that's what we desire to do, is to please God. But we desire that because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You cannot sanctify yourself. You don't have the power to do that. And so you rely on the Lord to do that. You pray and ask God to continually conform you, continually teach you, continually mold you, shape you to be all that he desires. And so what then do we do? We pursue it. We pursue it with all of our might. Make me, make me all that you want. Let me live a life that's honoring to you. Give me even more desires to live for your honor and teach me. Teach me that I may carry out these things that you command. Remember what Augustine prayed? Command what thou would and grant what you do command. So being in the scripture learning more the spirit doing the work in us gives us greater desires to live for the lord greater desires to obey which then is conforming us even more so to the image of of christ and this is all god's work in us he's given us these desires and changed us to want to do these things and so being a child of god these are not things that you must do to prove you're a disciple these are things that you will do demonstrating you are a disciple I can't do them. I can't make myself do these things. I have to rely on the Lord to do it. And so do you. When it comes to overcoming sin and living righteously, you have to depend upon the Spirit of God to do this. We get so down and out because because we think that we have to do these things and it's all up to us and it's if God has abandoned us to our own self and Lord, I know you're going to bless me when I figure this out and, and when, I, when I overcome this thing. And, and the whole time it's like, no. It is the Spirit of God that is even giving you the desire to be repulsing what you used to indulge in. That's coming from the Spirit of God. So we rely on Him to remove and suppress the rudiments of the old man to give us the desires to pursue the things that are good and right, to show us the way of escape with every temptation, and to give us the strength to overcome it. 
And that's why when it comes to your salvation, dear Christian, your salvation from beginning to end, the work that he began in you, the work that he will complete in you, because he's the author and he's the finisher of your faith, all the thanks goes to him. Even Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, uh, concerning himself with all the other apostles, he says, I labored more than all of them, but it wasn't me doing it, but the grace of God in me. Anything good that Paul did, he gave credit back to the Lord. Because the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, dear friends, we want to grow in holiness, we pray for it. We want to grow in our sanctification, you pursue it. And you depend on the Lord to do what you can't. Remain in his word, knowing that the spirit of God works in conjunction with his word to give you a greater understanding of things, greater desires. You have to rely on him, not in your own strength. And that's what we got to come to. We like to hold on to things and try to do things in our own power, and you just can't do it. God is the one who freed you. God is the one who enslaved you to himself. God is the one who gives you these desires because he works in you. So pray, pursue after it, rely on the Lord, and delight, all, delight in him and give him thanks for all. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, that we owe our, everything that we ever desire to be, we owe to you. You are the one who's, who has saved us, who is saving us, and who will save us. As your word uses those particular words to express our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, it's all dependent upon you. Father, continually shape us and mold us. As we read your word and as we study your word, we pray that the Spirit of God will continually do a mighty work within us, giving us new desires to carry out what we understand and read from the Scripture because we know that it's pleasing to you. Do a mighty work within us continually. And Father, we, we truly do look forward to the day in which you will call us home and we no longer have to contend with sin. But we will serve you rightly in the way that you should be served and worshiped and praised. And we will thank you with, with hearts that are not still contaminated. We love you, Father, not as we should, but we look forward to the day when we will love you in, in a way that will be honoring to you fully actually bless each person here and may we all honor you with our lives for it's in jesus name we pray and only god's children said amen